for me this week. I don't know if all of you know it, but I struggle with chronic asthma, and I had a rough week this week, and I'm still not feeling back up to full strength, but with the Lord's help, he'll get me through the next hour and a half. So nobody caught that. It's all right. (laughs) All right, we're going to go back to Revelation chapter 12. In our study of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, we finished chapter 11 a couple of weeks ago. And just to get us caught up where we are in chapter 12, chapter 9 was the opening of the sixth trumpet judgment, or the blowing of the sixth trumpet. And then chapter 10 and 11 were kind of a pause or a parenthetical to give us some background information between that sixth and seventh trumpet. And when we enter chapter 12 here, um, we're in a sense still in that parenthetical. At the end of chapter 11, we had the blowing of the seventh trumpet. But God is going to fill in some background information for us here in the next few chapters, actually. And so we won't actually see what comes out of the seventh trumpet directly until we get to chapter 15. So just keep, you know, holding on and stick with me, and God's going to fill in the details for us over these next few chapters from a different perspective. But we're going to read chapter 12 this morning, verses 1 through 6. We're just going to take the first part of chapter 12. And this is more information that we need to understand, background information, to understand really all of Revelation but, um, and the Scripture. But God has given us this here, and so this is where we're going to be today. Revelation chapter 12, starting at verse 1, the Bible says this, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for devour, to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. We're going to stop there. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll look at our message this morning. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we can set apart to just learn together as you teach us from your word. Lord, may you remove the distractions now, and may we submit ourselves to your spirit as he guides us through these passages in Revelation that we've been studying. And Lord, this passage in chapter 12, we need your help as well as all of other scripture to understand, to apply it, to to see how it's important for us. And so Lord, give us wisdom as we submit ourselves to your teaching. And Lord, use me. You have promised that your strength is made perfect in our weakness, so use my weakness now. Speak through me. Fill me with your spirit. Give me the words to say so that we might hear from you today. We want to hear your truth. And so, Lord, just proclaim it now, and let us be listeners and taking what we've heard and being doers as well. Lord, we want to give you the glory. May you have the, the, all of the honor right now as we study together, and we thank you for what you're going to do and what you're going to teach us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As we enter chapter 12, I want to give you three things that are important to recognize in this chapter or as we get into this chapter in order to get it right, okay? In order to get all of Revelation right. The first thing we need to understand is the content here in chapter 12 is not the next step chronologically in Revelation. As I said, this is a look back. Um, You're probably all familiar when you watch a movie or read a book and then all of a sudden there's a scene that comes that's kind of a flashback and they're filling in information that we didn't know before. And that's kind of what God is doing here in chapter 12. He's giving us information that gives us the big picture here. In chapter 10 and 11, I already mentioned that's kind of a step back in a parenthetical way, and we saw God's working 
um, behind the scenes. And then he calls John in chapter 11 to, to measure the temple. And then at the end of chapter 11, we see the blowing of the seven trumpet, but not the effects yet. And so as we get into chapter 12, and actually in chapter 12 through chapter 14 and a little bit into 15, God gives us background information to help us understand the big picture, okay? So this is not a chronological next step of where we are in Revelation. This is filling in the big picture. And so in order to understand the big picture, God takes us in chapter 12 literally back to creation and then even beyond that to help us understand the details of what's going to be coming here. Okay, so that's the first thing. This is not the next step chronologically. Number two, you have to understand and keep in mind the centrality of Israel in all of Scripture. And the centrality of Israel in Revelation is what helps us to understand Revelation, and it will especially help us to understand what's happening here in chapter 12 as well. All right, remember, every book of the Bible was written by a Jew. There's a reason for that, okay? God's message was primarily and first to the Jews. We are benefits of that message. We are benefits of the blessings that God has given to the Jewish nation. In fact, I mentioned, I think, two weeks ago, the the new covenant of salvation was not given to the church. It was given to the Jews. In Jeremiah 31, we are benefactors of that blessing through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ, who becomes not just our Messiah, but our Savior, Okay, So we have to keep the centrality of Israel in all of Scripture in view to get this right. Number three, we have to understand the ultimate conflict in history. It is not man against man. It is not nature against nature. It's not man against nature. It's not nation against nation. Okay, It is the, the spirits of evil versus God. Satan is the epitome of evil. He is the originator of evil, if you will, the father of all sin. And his agenda is to destroy God's plan. That is the ultimate conflict. That's what we see here in chapter 12 and what we see actually all through Scripture. And I'm going to point that out as we look at the beginning of chapter 12. But we have to understand that Satan has no other agenda than to try to thwart the plan of God and to counteract what God is doing in his people and through his people. That is why Satan exists. He was thrown out of heaven because of his own sin, and now he wants to bring sin upon every other creature so that they will endure or have to go through the same persecution, judgment, and destruction that Satan will undergo as he enters judgment in the future. That is his agenda, to bring everyone down. And I want you to understand this point because it's extremely important. Satan has no regard for life at all. He doesn't care who lives and dies. He just destroys. That's why he's called the destroyer. And so when we keep those things in perspective, as we enter chapter 12, we will understand this passage and we'll understand Revelation a whole lot better and be able to put the pieces in place. So here in chapter 12... We go back to the beginning, actually, to fill in the blanks of the tribulation period and everything that comes before it to get the big picture, okay? Now, I mentioned chapter 11 ends with the blowing of the seven trumpet. We won't see the effects of that until we get to chapter 15. So the next couple of chapters, God is filling in the blanks for us. But remember the last thing that we saw in chapter 11. If you're there, just look back very quickly at verse 19 in chapter 11. It says, the temple of God was opened in heaven. There was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. There were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and a great hail. This is what is happening in heaven as this seventh trumpet is is blown. Okay, But remember the context here is the temple and the worship in heaven is the reality. What we have on earth is the reflection of that or the shadow of that. So we go back and we think, who had a temple? Who had an Ark of the Covenant? That was the Jews. We have to keep the Jews in mind. Now, there's benefits to us through the Jews, but we keep that in mind coming into chapter 12, 
God is talking about what's happening in heaven. Now we switch to look at what's happening on earth, but in the context of the Jewish nation and what God's doing there. So as we answer this question, the Ark of the Covenant in verse uh, 19 of chapter 11, the Ark of the Covenant is seen. What covenant is that? Who was that covenant given to? The Jewish people. Okay? It's given to the Jews. And we are bl- get blessed from that. Remember, God told Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to bless you apart or above every other nation. I'm going to make of you a great nation. And, he's, and what? Through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's Jesus Christ. Okay? God was talking about Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we have a Savior. And so we are blessed through the Jewish nation from which Jesus Christ came, and we receive that blessing. Okay? So as John begins chapter 12, we have to keep that particular thing in mind. And here he starts chapter 12, and he says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. Now, when God, John is not literally in heaven physically, okay? The rapture hasn't happened while John's receiving this vision. You know, this, this is uh, 2,000 years ago almost when he's getting this vision from God. But God, God gives him this vision. He's on earth. He's getting this vision. He's seen what's happening in heaven. And he sees what's going to happen in earth, on the earth during the tribulation. And here he says, I have this vision that I received. And he says, a great wonder in heaven. This is not something that happens with the stars and the, and the moon and the sun. This is a sign or a symbol. That's what that word means, a symbol. And so what John is going to relate to us is symbolic. Now, even though we want to read the Bible literally, there are symbolic things that God gives us. And this is one of those symbols that God gives John to teach us the truth that we need to understand. So he says, there appeared a great wonder or symbol, a sign in heaven. And here's the symbol. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. So here's the first symbol or sign that John sees in heaven, the woman. There are several opinions about who this woman is supposed to represent that have been floating around theology and the church for centuries. I'm going to tell you who this woman is not. Many think this woman represents the church. That's not so. Okay? This woman does not represent the church. It can't be the church unless you believe that the church will go through the tribulation. And even if you believe the church will go through the tribulation period, there's more in these verses that we are going to see that demonstrate it can't be the church, and we'll get to that. So I'm just going to tell you right now, it's not the church, okay? And we'll visit that or revisit that in a couple minutes. Other people think that this is the Virgin Mary or it represents the Virgin Mary. When you read these passages, look at verse 2. She being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And then you go down to verse 5. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So on the surface, it sounds like, wow, this is, this is Mary. This is the Virgin Mary. That It has to be because this is talking about Christ. And it is. But it's not talking about Mary specifically. Okay? Many people want to bring this down to the level of this is the Virgin Mary. But if you read verse 6, that negates that because the verse 6 says, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand and two hundred and threescore days. Now, Joseph and Mary did flee to Egypt for a time. But nowhere in the Bible does it say God fed them there or God fed Mary there. And we don't know how long she was there. So this is not Mary. Who this is, is Israel. This woman represents the nation of Israel, okay? Look at the description in verse 1. It says, A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, where have you heard that analogy before? How about Joseph's dream? Remember, Joseph had a dream way back in the Old Testament. Joseph wasn't liked by his brothers, and he had this dream, and he went and told his brothers and his mother and father this dream. And the dream was this. I was outstanding, and the sun and the moon and the stars bowed down to me. Remember that dream? 
And his brothers mocked him and said, who do you think you are? You think we're going to bow down to you? And we know that came true as Joseph went to Egypt and became second in command. And his brothers eventually came and literally bowed down before him because of his position of authority. But there's a bigger scope there. And as always is, in Scripture, we have a bigger fulfillment of that prophecy. And here it is. It is a symbolic of the nation of Israel. And that's why God uses this reference to Joseph's dream in describing Israel as this woman. And he says this woman was uh, clothed with the sun. That represents Jacob. The moon under her feet, that is Rachel. And upon her head, a crown of 12 stars. How many sons did Jacob have? 12, who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So here we have a symbolically represented Israel in this woman. Now, it also says she's clothed with the sun, that not just reference to Joseph's dream, but it demonstrates her exalted status as God's people. When you say, if you use that phrase, and I know we wouldn't say that today, you know, I wouldn't say, oh, my wife is clothed with the sun. You'd kind of look at me and go, oh, that's, he's a little strange in his mind today. Okay? But this was common language back then. They used analogies like this a lot in Jewish literature especially. But clothed with the sun meant this person has an exalted status. They, are, they have been lifted up by God, in a sense. Okay? And think of the sun's brightness. You know, it represents the glory of God. And so this person has been exalted by God and exhibits God's glory. And that is a perfect statement about Israel or about what they will become. That was God's purpose for them. So enclosed with the sun, it demonstrates their exalted purpose. So right away here, we have this connection with Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel, with Joseph, again, also, the crown, if you look at the, it says the crown of 12 stars. The word crown there is the word Stephanos. That's the victor's crown that the, the uh, athletes would achieve or would receive after they achieved a victory in an event. It was a crown, like a laurel wreath that they would put on their head, but it was a crown of victory. And so, symbolically here, God is saying, here's this woman, exalted by God, the nation Israel, receiving this crown of victory because they have overcome. Now, have they overcome at this point? Not so much. But remember the crowns that God promised or that Jesus Christ promised to the churches back in Revelation 2 and 3. He says, to those who overcome, I will give you a crown of life. That's that Stephanos, that crown of victory. And Israel will overcome with God's help. We're going to see that as we get farther into Revelation. God will deliver them, and they will fall at his feet and become exactly what God has planned for them to become. And so they have this crown of victory. Verse 2 says, She is being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. Now, I'm going to go back to my statement about this not being the church, okay? When has God's church ever been Expecting, delivering, in pain, you know, pregnant. Okay, Israel was described that way several times in Old Testament prophecy, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus Christ came out of Israel. And so you see the picture here that God gives us of a pregnant woman ready to deliver the Messiah, and that's who we're talking about in these verses That never happened with the church. The church did not bring forth the Messiah. The church was brought forth from the Messiah. So it's backwards. So this can't be the church. Okay? I'm just going to point that out. So this is Israel, and the Messiah was birthed out of the nation of Israel. All all of God's plan, going back to Genesis chapter 3, was to bring a redeemer, the Messiah, into the earth to redeem fallen man. He chose Abraham to make that happen through his descendants. And he chose Israel as the nation not only to bring forth the Messiah from, but also through them may the oracles of God be brought to mankind. And we have the Bible because of the Jews. Every author of every book was Jewish. Okay, so the Bible is a Jewish book. God brought us all of that through the Jews. Messiah came through the Jews. So here we're introduced to Israel, and this is the first participant 
in the great conflict of the ages. Who is their enemy? Verse 3. And there appeared another wonder in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. This is none other than Satan himself. Okay? Now, I want to say this. Even though God describes him here as a red dragon, Satan does not look like the pictures that we see in cartoons and the Halloween costumes that we have of the devil. He is not walking around in a red suit with horns and a forked tail and a pitchfork, you know, and, and the, the, the uh, evil mustache with the evil laugh looking for people to poke. That's not Satan. Satan was the most beautiful, is the most beautiful creation that God ever created. The Bible describes him as more beautiful than all of the other angels, more beautiful than all of other creation. And that's why sin is appealing, because Satan knows how to make things look beautiful to us. So this red dragon does not describe his looks. This red dragon describes his character. The character of a dragon is vicious and destructive, and that's why God uses this this description here. Now, I want to take just a second, and I want to go backwards for just a minute, okay? As we're introduced to Israel, as we're introduced to Satan, well, we don't have to be introduced, but God introduces him here as another participant in this great conflict of the ages, okay? Here is, on earth, the big conflict, the main conflict, Satan versus God's people, and I'm talking specifically about Israel, okay? Now, Satan does come after the church. We read that in Ephesians. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places, rulers of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places, okay? But again, the focus is not on the church. God ordained and brought into being the church for the purpose of making Israel jealous, okay? The Bible clearly tells us that. God's bride, God the Father's bride, was Israel. All through the New Old Testament, we see allusions to that. We see references to God and the bride, Israel. In fact, several times it refers to God being divorced from his bride because they have become a harlot. But he wants to redeem them. In fact, if you know the prophet Hosea and his story, God told Hosea to go marry a prostitute to symbolize what God was trying to accomplish in Israel. They had gone astray. They had been unfaithful, and God wants to bring them back. Okay? So again, the focus is on Israel here. And the great enemy of Israel is Satan. He wants to destroy Israel. That's what we have right here in chapter 12 in the first six verses. The conflict between Satan and Israel and his destructive intent in their lives. Now, I want to give you one more piece of information. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. You're familiar with this. Let me read it for you. We use this at Christmas. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I'm going to stop there for a second. We use that all the time, and it is applicable to us because we have been given a Savior. But who was that written to? Isaiah the prophet, writing to his own people. And so when he says, unto us, he's not talking about the church, he's talking about Israel. And he says, unto us, a child is born. The word child there is a natural descendant from a human family. The child, Jesus Christ, was born to a human mother, Mary, right? So they, were, they, they had a child born in the house of Israel. But what's the next phrase? Unto us a son is given. Not born, given. Why is it given? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
Jesus Christ was not really a natural son of Israel. He was the son of God. But he was the son of God given to Israel. He was born a child, but he was God's son, not Israel's son. And so when we read even Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we see that Jesus Christ, his, his main focus is Israel. He was given to Israel. Satan wants to destroy that. In, in verse 7 of cha- Isaiah chapter 9, it says, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order, to establish it with judgment, with justice from henceforth, even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We're talking about the kingdom of Jesus Christ on the earth. Who is the prince of the power of the air right now? Who is the prince of this world right now? Satan. He doesn't want to give that up. Jesus Christ, when he comes the second time, is going to destroy that. And so Satan's going to do everything he can. In fact, Satan has been doing everything he could from the beginning of time to destroy that plan. So Israel is this woman. Satan is the red dragon. And the red dragon, let me give you some, some more about him if I can get my pages turned here. All right, in verse 3 it says, The red dragon uh, having seven, horn, seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. First he's called great. He's a great dragon, a great red dragon. Um, because it's Satan, and I already told you about his beauty, but God has given him great power as well. He was the most powerful of all the angels. Okay? He was, in essence, if you, if you will, kind of the right-hand man of God in heaven when he was created. That's what God created him for, and through his pride, he fell. And so Satan is the most beautiful. He has the most power in creation, but not over creation. Please keep that in mind. God is in control. Satan has power in creation. Okay? And God has allowed him to usurp the authority in ruling over this earth at this point through the introduction of sin into the world. God allowed that. God did not cause that. God allowed him to usurp that authority, and Satan will reclaim, or I'm sorry, Christ will reclaim that from Satan in his kingdom. That's what we've been talking about all through Revelation so far. Here he's called red because John 8, 44, in Jesus' words, he was a murderer from the beginning. Red symbolizes blood, especially in Revelation. Whenever you see red, that's bloodshed, okay? What is Satan's purpose? To kill and to destroy. So it aptly describes him in those terms. Um, and In fact, in Revelation chapter 17, Satan is described as a scarlet-covered beast, I'm sorry, scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So he's a red, and then he's called a dragon because of the absolute viciousness of his character. Interestingly, if you go back into the Old Testament, and we read one of these today, the word dragon in the Old Testament in Hebrew can be interpreted monster or sea monster. It's the same word, okay, depending on the context. So we're talking about a monster here. And that's what Satan is. So God describes him as a red dragon, intent on destruction and death. And he says he has seven heads and ten horns with seven crowns on his head. Now we have the same description or a very similar description in Revelation 13 and in Daniel chapter 7, talking about Satan here. Okay, In Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Daniel says this about his visions, And after this I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, strong exceedingly, it had great iron teeth, it devoured and brake in pieces and stamped residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it and had a ten horns. Now the beast that Daniel's describing here is a kingdom of Rome, which will be um, re, uh, resurrected, actually, in the time of the Antichrist at the end times, Okay. But here it is, and he says, And I considered the ten horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, So Daniel describes the work of Satan 
and he's working through these horns and heads. And so in Revelation chapter 12, when he's described as having seven heads and ten horns, that's the authority that he exerts on the earth. Okay. Now commentators are divided about what specifically these seven heads are to represent here. Most, some, some commentators believe that the seven heads are the seven earthly kingdoms throughout history that have been focused on persecution to Israel. And let's name them, okay? If you're a history student, here's your quiz. It started with Egypt. Remember, Jacob and his family moved to Egypt where Joseph was during the famine, and then they stayed there, and then they became more numerous than the sand of the sea, probably close to 3 million people. And they were there for over 400 years in slavery. Egypt persecuted Israel. Starts with Egypt. Then we have Assyria, who came in in the 700s and conquered the northern tribes. We have Babylon, who comes in and conquers Judah. We have Medo-Persia, who comes in and conquers Babylon, but still rules over Israel. We have Greece, then, who comes in and conquers the Medo-Persians. And they rule over Israel and Jerusalem through the Seleucid Empire, especially. And then that was conquered by Rome just before the time of Christ. And Rome was in power during the time of Christ. So we have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. There's the first six. So what's the seventh? The kingdom of the Antichrist. And his focus will be on persecuting Israel. Okay? There's our seven kingdoms, seven heads, that Satan has used throughout history to try to destroy Israel. The seven diadems that are here, the crowns, demonstrate power and authority of a reigning as king. This is a different crown. This is a ruling crown. The word here is diadem. It's not the Stephanos, a victor's crown. This is a ruling crown, someone with power and authority. So Satan has seven kingdoms with power and authority that have persecuted and come against Israel. And all of them have tried to destroy Israel and wipe them off the face of the earth. This morning in Sunday school, we were studying the book of Esther together. Remember Haman's plan to kill all of the Jews. That was Satan working through the Persian Empire. Okay? Just one example. So seven diadems demonstrate power and authority and reigning as a king. The ten horns represent ten world leaders that will serve the Antichrist in his reign. Now Daniel has that as well. I read that. He has ten horns. Okay, so in, and and in fact, if you go back to the beginning of Daniel in chapter 2, you have the image that Nebuchadnezzar has the dream about. And on the legs, there's ten toes, and those ten toes are made of iron and clay. That is a symbol of the resurrected Roman Empire, ten divisions. Okay, that's what we're going to see in the time of the Antichrist. Ten ruling authorities, all united under the Antichrist's ultimate authority on earth. And so we have it described right here. This is Satan's work in the earth through history. And why has he raised up these authorities? To destroy God's plan. And specifically, to destroy Israel. So we have, the, we have Satan pictured very clearly here in Revelation chapter 12. Then look at verse 4, the beginning of verse 4. He says, his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. This is not an event happening here. This is something that has already happened. This is past tense. When Satan was cast out of heaven because of his pride, the tail is his influence. And just picture, if you will, okay, in your mind, let, let's use this picture of a great dragon as Satan. And God casts him out of heaven. And the great tail of Satan sweeps across the heavens and gathers on one-third of the other angels. That's what this is talking about. So one-third of the angels that God created fell with Satan from heaven when he was cast out because of his sin. So that is his demons. Some of those are the demons we saw already back in the fifth and sixth Uh, trumpet judgments. Remember the horde of demons that came out of the pit, the the abyss, like a swarm of locusts. And then the 200 million demon strong army that comes against the earth in the sixth trumpet judgment. Okay? They're part of this. So we know that Satan fell. We also see here that a third of the angels fell with him. 
and they have been working with him all through history to, th- to try to thwart God's plan in the earth to bring a redeemer to mankind. Isaiah, I won't read the verses, but in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, it describes the fall of Satan from heaven. Okay? Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 12 through 17, have another description of Satan's fall from heaven. And we know it was his pride. But here in Revelation 12, we find out he took a third of the angels with him. And now we call them demons. They are angelic beings. How many did he take? We don't know. Okay? If we start to use some numbers, we know at least 200 million strong from the sixth trumpet. There was a swarm in the fifth trumpet. I don't know. Maybe we can just assume that was 100 million. So there's 300 million. There's also others that are on earth right now doing the bidding of Satan. So we have no idea how many demons or angels fell with Satan from heaven. But if we use a conservative number based on just some estimates, at least 300 million angels fell with Satan from heaven. That's a huge army. It's not like he has just a couple here and there. 300 million, and that's a small estimate. But that means that there's still two-thirds left in heaven, so there's at least 600 million angels still on God's side. So now when he says, he will give his angels charge over thee to keep thy foot from fall, when, when thou fallest, to keep thy foot from dashing upon a stone. Okay, he means it. God will send his angels to take care of us, just as he did Jesus Christ. All right? So here's the picture of who the real enemy is in chapters 3 and 4. The second part of chapter 4 says, And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. This statement is the purpose of Satan throughout all of history. Okay? It's not a one-time event. That he was waiting for Christ to be born, he kind of stood in the shadows and held back until Jesus was born, and then he was going to attack and destroy Jesus, and then it'd all be over. Okay? No, it's bigger than that. It's to prevent the Savior from coming. It's to prevent God's plan of redemption from happening. It's to prevent God from fulfilling his promises to Abraham through Israel, including the Messiah. And so that's this statement in the second half of verse 4. The dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Satan's ultimate purpose throughout history has been to thwart God's plan of a redeemer from the very beginning. And remember, God promised the redeemer way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, right after Adam and Eve fell in sin. And so that's been Satan's plan ever since Genesis 3.15. In fact, probably before that. So God's plan is to provide a redeemer. Satan's plan is to keep that from happening. That's the story of the Old Testament. That's the story of the history of Israel. Okay? So in verse 4, Satan is waiting to destroy the Messiah and the promise of the Messiah and the prospect of a Messiah. Anything that has to do with God's plan for a redeemer. And it didn't start with Jesus' birth. It goes all the way back to Genesis 6. And very quickly, let me just recount some of what we read in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 6, after the fall of Adam and Eve, we have people multiplying on the earth. And Genesis 6 starts with these verses when it talks about the demons or the sons of God. It uses that phrase to refer to angels, and these are fallen angels, come to earth and cohabitate with women to produce a race of giants called the Nephilim. That's what the the Hebrew word is for it. The Nephilim. They're giants. They are half human, half demon. Okay? Now, you go back in Greek mythology, and you hear about demigods. Where'd they get that idea? Genesis chapter 6. Okay? That was Satan's plan. But he wanted to destroy the pure bloodlines of mankind so that the Messiah could not be born. But we know the story. God preserved Noah and his family. Destroyed the rest of the world. Okay? So then Satan fails there. He goes and starts planning another attempt. We have Israel in Egypt, and Satan goes into Pharaoh, raises up Pharaoh to persecute, to destroy the Jews. Remember, Pharaoh said, they're getting too many. Let's start killing all the male children. That would eliminate the Messiah. That didn't work. 
So Satan populates the promised land where Israel is going to go with Canaanites who are steeped in idolatry and Satan worshipers to draw God's promised people or chosen people away from his Messiah. That kind of worked, but God preserved his remnant even through that. Then Satan uses four major kingdoms of the world before Christ comes to attack and destroy Israel. Syria, Babylon, Persia, I'm sorry, yeah, Syria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome, five major kingdoms, to destroy Israel. But God preserves his remnant, even through that. Then we get to Christ being born during the Roman Empire. What happens immediately after Christ is born? Herod wants to kill all the male children because he doesn't want to have his throne taken away from him. But God preserves the Messiah. Okay? You see the pattern. This is the great conflict through all of history. And then Satan tries to tempt Jesus to draw him away from God's plan. Remember, Jesus is up in the temple. Or he's, I'm sorry, he starts out in the wilderness, 40 days fasting, and Satan comes to him and tempts him three times. And one of those temptations is, if you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And we think in our minds, well, they already belong to Christ, but Satan had already usurped the authority. Christ's purpose is to gain back or reclaim that authority in the millennial kingdom. Satan's trying to change the timeline and the conditions in those temptations. He's saying, Forget God's plan. Forget the Father's plan. You're a rightful king. You know you're going to get it, so I'll give it to you now. I'll hand it over if you just worship me. Satan again, trying to thwart God's plan. And then eventually, Satan uses Christ's own people, the Jews themselves, to put Jesus Christ to death. And what Satan didn't understand was that was exactly God's plan to accomplish his plan of salvation because Jesus Christ had to die in order to bring repentance for our sins. So the very moment of Satan's greatest triumph actually became the greatest defeat in his plan to thwart God's redemptive plan on earth. But Jesus didn't stay dead. And because he could not and he did not, all the promises of God, therefore, can be fulfilled. He will become a blessing to all nations, just like he promised Abraham. But there's still unfulfilled promises. Even though the church has experienced the spiritual blessings of those promises, what about Israel and their land? That is a promise, an eternal covenant by God with Israel. That's what he says. So Israel still has to have their land. Israel still has to have their king. The throne of David still has to have a king on it who will reign forever on the earth. Those have to be fulfilled. And so since Satan couldn't stop the Messiah, maybe he can ruin the rest of the plan, right? After Christ, Rome comes in, destroys Jerusalem, kills millions of Jews, and scatters them all around the world. And ever since then, you go through history, you see nation after nation after nation after nation trying to get rid of the Jews. I mean, the greatest one in recent history, the Holocaust. That wasn't Hitler, that was Satan. But God preserved his remnant. And in fact, Satan will even try to use the church. Because we have this thing called replacement theology, which says, Israel's done, God's done with them. They don't matter anymore. All the promises that God gave to Israel now apply to the church. That is not the way that scripture tells it. Okay? And so Satan has infiltrated the church with this replacement theology to try to thwart the plan of God to fulfill his promises to Israel. But in verse 5, we have God's intervention. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, Her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Jesus was born. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus went to heaven. He rose from the dead and went back to heaven. That's what the verse says. The son was born, the man child. He was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. That means Satan did not win that battle. 
Jesus Christ came and accomplished his work on this earth, and God took him back to heaven, where he is now seated on the throne. Psalm chapter 2 is prophecy for that event. It says, and, and this is uh, uh, God talking through David. It says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of God. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. That's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. Jesus Christ will have all of the heathen nations as his inheritance. Okay? And then verse 9 in Psalm chapter 2 says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We see the same phrase in Psalm 2 that we see in Revelation chapter 12. Okay, it's not a coincidence, folks. God put the pieces in place for us to put the pieces together. And so he, here we have Jesus Christ. He's going to come and rule with a rod of iron, and he will destroy all his enemies before the millennial kingdom and then rule with a very strict justice during the millennial kingdom. Now, we think as believers and as uh, glorified and redeemed Jews going into millennial kingdom will be glorified already because we'll be in heaven and then come back. The people who survived the tribulation, who are believers, Jewish or Gentile, will go into the millennial kingdom as human beings. Okay? But this will be a kingdom like no kingdom on earth has ever been. Now, for those who believe, it will be a glorious kingdom, full of blessing, full of praise and honor to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the perfect ruler. But for those who are born on earth during the millennial kingdom, they still have sin nature in them, and they will rebel in their hearts. And that's why at the end of a thousand years, you have the battle of Gog and Magog when Christ again, or when Satan is released, and you have this huge battle when Christ finally destroys all people who are against him and then sends Satan to the abyss forever, okay, to the, to the lake of fire. But... Think about this. For us, it's a glorious time. For people who reject Christ, it's not going to be so much because his justice will be firm and hard and quick because he demands absolute obedience and loyalty. And so even in the millennial kingdom, Christ will rule with a rod of iron. But that's okay because righteous people love righteousness. Who is it that doesn't like rules now? Rebellious people. People who want to do their own thing. It's not going to be any different in Christ's kingdom. So when we talk about uh, this rod of iron, we know that's Jesus Christ. And then it says, her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. Now, verse 6 shifts gears, okay? God has already set Jesus Christ on the throne. He's about to send him back to earth after the tribulation, to set up his throne on earth, on David's throne, literally, in Jerusalem. But in verse 6, we have a gap between 5 and 6, okay, in, in the time period. And I want you to look at it this way. The gap between verses 5 and 6 is the gap between Daniel's 69th and 70th week of Israel, okay? Daniel, gives, Daniel receives a vision that gives... 69 weeks or 70 weeks of God's interaction with Israel. 69 weeks, if you read Daniel chapter 7, um, it comes up to 69th week, and I'm sorry, Daniel 9, and the prophet says that after the 69th week, the Messiah will be cut off. That's his death. Okay, that's when Jesus died. And then there's a gap. And then when he starts talking about the 70th week in Daniel 9, we're in the tribulation period. But he eliminates the whole time period in between. So what do we call that time period in between Christ's ascension to heaven and the beginning of the tribulation? The church age. Because God has paused his focus on Israel, if you will. He's now working through the church during this temporary period. And when the church is gone at the rapture, he will again push the button on Israel and 70th week will begin during the tribulation period. And so that's what we see here in verses 5 and 6. This is all of history up to Jesus Christ's ascension in verse 5. And then verse 6, we look at the tribulation. And the woman fled into the wilderness. Why? 
because of the great beast that was trying to destroy her. The woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. So God is giving us a picture of what's going to happen to Israel in the tribulation, being persecuted and trying to destroy them by the Antichrist. And God will prepare a place of refuge for them. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details of that place of refuge. Okay, I've shared a little bit with you before. But God says he's prepared a place of refuge and he will feed them there for 1,200 three-score days. And by the way, if you don't know math, that's three and a half years according to the Jewish calendar. Three and a half years. The second half of the tribulation period, which we've been studying in the last several chapters of, of Revelation. Okay? So for time's sake... We're not going to talk about the place of refuge. I'll I'll bring that back another time. I believe it's a place called Petra. It's in southern Jordan. Um, Look it up. Do some research on it. Uh, The history of it is amazing. Maybe I'll share that with you the next time we're together. Anyway, but God has prepared a place. He's going to protect the remnant of Israel through the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And at the end of the tribulation, all Israel will be saved. Whoever's left. That's what the Bible says. That's what Romans chapter 11, verses 24 and 25 say. Paul says that. All Israel shall be saved. And so we have kind of a miniature history here from the beginning of creation all the way through the end of the tribulation in these six verses about the great conflict of Satan, Satan trying to thwart God's plan by destroying the nation Israel, or destroying the prospect of them receiving the promises of God to them. Okay? We've got to stop there. Next week, we'll see the great conflict in heaven. That starts in verse 7. So if you want to jump ahead and read, get some preparation done, go ahead, do it. Okay? And then next week, we'll get into that phase of it. So let's have a word of prayer as we close today. Lord, thank you again for your word. We thank you that even as we study these things that are happening in the future, Lord, you've given us the big picture of what's happening all around us through history. Lord, we know that we fight against Satan and his angels. We know that we fight against evil. It's not against people. Satan just uses people for his purpose, Lord. So give us strength. Help us to rely on your strength. Help us be strong in Jesus Christ from whom our strength comes. And help us to always put on that armor so that we're prepared for those fiery darts that Satan wants to throw at us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a love for the Jewish people as you have for them, as you have, through history, shown them your favor, your grace, and your preservation on their behalf. And so, Lord, we look forward to the day when you will fulfill all of your promises to them. But, Lord, keep us faithful as the church. Help us to bring that truth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to those who need to hear it, especially your chosen people, Israel, um, so that they can be redeemed and receive that truth. Lord, thank you again for what you've taught us today. Help us not to forget it, but to take it with us and meditate on it day and night, as you told us to. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with 326, more about Jesus. Just the first and the last stanzas. 326, more about Jesus. When you found out, let's stand together.